First Peter chapter two is where we'll be this morning. Um, First Peter two, verses eighteen through twenty-five will be the text where we're focused. So why don't why don't we all stand together? As you're turning in your scripture, there, just stand up and. God's Word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is also, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in this body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Pray with me. Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would take center stage. Let all the other things just just fade away. May our focus be solely on you. Use this word. Use this word that you have spoken through Peter to speak to us and to speak through us as we live. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Sometimes it's a little harder. Sometimes it's a little easier. But God... Uh, has called us to a life of subjection. Subjection, uh, remember I said last week that the word for be subject is to be subordinated. It's to consider someone else more than you. And that plays out in a couple of different ways. Today we're going to look at it uh, in response to the one who suffers unjustly. Next week we're actually going to talk about it in the context of marriage. So just go ahead and get your hard shoes out. Uh, you know, you're still toe boots because you're going to need them next Sunday. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and tell y'all. Uh, and all of us are going to need them. It's not just for the wives or just for the husbands. We're all going to need steel toe boots next week. But this week, our focus is on uh, us as servants. And specifically, when he is talking about servants, he is talking about slaves. Now, we have in our eyes a picture of 19th century America form of slavery. Somebody is enslaved because their dad was enslaved and, their, and his dad was enslaved and his dad was enslaved. Uh, and and some, in some cases, uh, slaves, born to slaves, born to slaves in multiple generations. Uh, many, of, many of the slaves in America could not read or write They had no form of education whatsoever. Many of them uh, were basically just born to be slaves, and that was it. They were treated uh, treated as chattel. They were treated as property. 
uh, sometimes worse than property. That's not the form of slavery that's going on. In the Roman Empire, slavery was so uh, such a normal thing. Some estimates are that somewhere between 20-25% and over 50% of citizens, of residents in the Roman Empire were slaves. And that slavery in that day was a means of debt repayment. So if you think about it, uh, uh, the basic idea was, and, it, and, and certainly it had some very bad features to it, but the basic idea was, I owe a debt that I can't pay, so I will sell myself as repayment for a certain amount of time. Some pretty prominent folks in Roman society were slaves. Um, in fact, public servants, we get that idea from Rome because the people who were employed in public office were slaves. They were slaves to the emperor and slaves to the citizens of Rome. I don't know how many of, of Peter's audience are slaves. I don't know how many of them are subject to a master who are under the authority of another human being. I don't know for sure. It could have been 20, 25. It could have been 50%. It could have been the majority. You know, when, when you've got a Lord who says that it's easier for a rich uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven, I don't imagine there were a whole lot of rich people running to sign up for Christianity in those early days. And so it's very possible that the majority of Peter's audience are slaves. And so when he writes to them, he's writing to a, a group of people that by and large, at least a good portion of them, have a master, have an owner. And what he says to them is, be subject to your masters with all respect. God commands us to submit as servants to masters. Now, you may not be enslaved, but we all have some kind of master, don't we? There, are, there is somebody who is in authority. Some of us, uh, um, I said last week, some of us are kind of the authority figure. Uh, Jim owns his own business. And so he's kind of the, the high man on the totem pole. But some days I bet he doesn't feel like that because some days I bet he feels like the low man on the totem pole because he's got so much to try to deal with and so many people, but he has customers and he has, he has to deal with his employees in a way that it's not just I'm demanding and you're going to do everything I say. But we all have somebody we're answering to. If you're a husband, you're answering to your wife. If you're a wife, you're answering to your husband. We'll talk about that next week. If you're, if you're an employee, you answer to your boss. If you're a boss, you answer to your shareholders or to your, to your board of directors. We all answer to somebody. And Peter tells us, be subject to your masters with all respect. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes the master isn't very respectable. That's why he continues to say, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Just like in American slavery, some slaves were treated very, very poorly, beaten over the smallest offenses. It was also that way in Rome. In fact, one of the debates among the philosophers of the day was how harsh is too harsh to treat your slave? Should you go real hard on them and, and beat them for every little offense? Should you, should you be a little more forgiving and just beat them for the major things? Should you, should you use a softer hand or a harder hand? 
Because if you go too soft, they don't really work well for you. They get away with stuff. They, they skate on by and they do the bare minimum. If you go too hard, well, then you're just a brute and you're not worthy to be considered in polite society as an upstanding citizen of Rome. So it was a kind of a balance, and the philosophers actually debated back and forth. Suetonius and, and, and Philo, I think, gets in on it, and, and um, uh, Socrates has his own things to say, and many of the others that, that all kind of debating on what, what's the right way to handle it. Some masters were pretty good. Some masters were really bad. Peter says, be subject no matter which master you have. Now, that's kind of interesting. God commands us to submit to both good and bad masters. It doesn't depend on the character of the master. What it depends upon is the character of the servant. The nature of the servant as a servant is called to be good, no matter how bad the master might be, to be subject, no matter how unrespectable the master might be. That, that's hard for us. Because we think, well, if, if my employer is going to be like that, if my boss is going to be that bad, then, then I'm just not going, I'm just going to mail it in. I'm just going to do what I have to do and not worry about the rest. Well, if, if, if she tre keeps treating me that way, well, I'm just not, I'm just not going to worry. I'm not going to do it for her anymore. If he keeps talking to me like that, then I'm just... He can, he can go sleep in the doghouse. We often approach how we respond to people based on how they treat us. But Peter calls us to a different kind of ethic. He calls us to an ethic that says you do the right thing. Even when the people you are, are, you are accountable to, even when the master that you are serving isn't doing the right thing. You do what's right even when they do you wrong. That's a whole different kind of ethic. But it's an ethic that embodies in, 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 it encapsulates the ethic of God's kingdom. We don't get the, we don't get the opportunity. We don't get the, the clearance to do wrong just because we've been wronged. God is not an injury lawyer. Have you been injured? Call me and I'll get you what you deserve. That's not God. God says, turn the other cheek. You know why you turn the other cheek? Because they were wrong to hit you the first time. And for them to hit you again on the other cheek, they'd have to hit you with the back of the hand, which shows them, did they really deserve this? You want to insult someone, you hit them backhanded. You hit them fronthand, that's a passion kind of thing. That's just something that, that's something that, that's easy to do. But to hit with the backhand, you have to be completely intentional. You have to rear back. You have to mean to insult. God says, you do what's right even when they're doing you wrong. And then he explains why. The four in verse 19 is giving us the reason for the principle in 18. The principle is you serve res 
with respect the master that you have, whether he's a good master or a bad master, does not matter. You still do the right thing. The principle is you do the right thing even whether you're being wronged or not. And he goes into the reason for the principle in 19. He says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? That kind of reminded me of what Jesus said back in Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, he says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Why did he say that? He says, uh, Luke 6, this is verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Can I, can I put it in parlance that, that some of us would understand today? Because the word sinner to us doesn't have the same kind of meaning. Let me put it in a little bit different way. What good does it do you to love those who love you? Even Democrats do the same. Even Republicans do the same. Does it make a little more sense now? Sometimes we think of them, oh, you voted for the wrong guy. You must be, you must be like either ignorant or like evil. Or maybe both. Jesus says, love them anyway. Because if you love someone who loves you, anybody can do that. How easy is it to be sweet to someone who's being sweet? How easy is it to care for someone who's just so nice? I think of some folks, if they called me right now, I would stop this sermon and go to them just because they're so sweet. They're so wonderful. If they needed me right now, Jim would have to finish the sermon. I got my notes right here. You can just look on. <laughs> but there's some people that if I was two steps away from them and they called me, I wouldn't want to go. Even if I had nothing else to do. Even if I was begging for something to do. There's certain people that if they called and said, I need you over here, I'd be like, I'm sorry, I got plans. I'm busy. I... <laughs> right? Jesus says, what good is it to you if you love those who love you, anybody can do it. No, love those who hate you. Peter says, what good is it if you follow a master who's good? Anybody can do that. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If, if you are enduring suffering because you deserve it, oh, I endured. I, I endured. I think of it this way. When I was a kid, and I didn't want to do something my parents made me do, and I got in trouble for it, I really couldn't brag about getting in trouble for it. Yeah, I'm enduring suffering. Well, yeah, you brought it on yourself, right? I did wrong. I deserve punishment. I got punishment. I endured the punishment, so I'm a great guy, right? No. No, you deserved it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, and you endure it, if when you do good and you suffer, and you endure that kind of suffering. This, Peter says, is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He calls it grace. When we suffer injustice and endure, it reflects God's grace. It, it, it's not just that it's a nice thing to hear about. 
It's not just a, I'm so sorry you had to go through all that. You have my pity. You have my sympathy. No, it's a display of God's grace. When we suffer and we don't deserve it and we endure that suffering, the way we endure that suffering is by the grace of God. And the end of that suffering is a demonstration of grace to those who watch us. Because make no mistake about it, whether you have kids or not, somebody's watching you. Now, they may not be conscious about it. They may not be eyeing your every move, waiting for you to mess up. But they see you. It, how, many, how many times have we seen a story of someone who was unjustly treated and yet endured? What changed the American mind in the days of the Civil Rights Movement was images of people being beaten who weren't doing anything. People being sprayed with water hoses who didn't deserve it. When, when, when our culture, and, and I say our culture, I wasn't alive then, but, but when our culture saw those kinds of images and those kinds of videos of what was going on, it changed the way many people thought. And it changed because they were not doing wrong, but they were being wronged. That's a powerful testimony. When we do what's right, in spite of what wrong others are doing to us, it gives a testimony to the nature of God. It shows the world what God has done. In fact, when we suffer injustice and endure, it reflects God's grace just as when Christ suffered and endured for us. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. When we suffer from injustice and we endure it, it demonstrates God's grace. It reflects God's grace in the same kind of way that Christ suffered and endured for us. When we look at Jesus on the cross and we see the Lamb of God who perfectly lived and made perfect atonement for our sins who did not deserve to be on that cross and yet there He is anyway bearing the weight of our sins and our iniquities and our injustice and He's enduring it for us. That's the model. That's the example that we need to look to. In fact, he even says, he left us an example that we might walk in his footsteps. So that brings up a question. How did Christ suffer? Well, verses 22 through 25 give us several ways that he suffered. 22, he committed no sin. He suffered sinlessly. You know, he could have. He could, he could have just called down fire and brimstone on all of them. In fact, wasn't that what one of, the, one of the folks there watching? He saved others. Let him save himself. I mean, he, he did all these great things. While he, let, him, let him come down from that cross. Let, if it's just really wrong, then do something about it. I mean, if God was really a good God, why would he let someone innocent suffer? Why didn't he just come down? 
He's got legions of angels at his beck and call. All he's got to do is just look up at them. He doesn't even have to say the word. They are waiting for it. All he's got to do is give the right look toward them and they are rushing in the way. He didn't deserve to be there. But he went there anyway. He suffered sinlessly. He also suffered sincerely. Look at the second part of that verse. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. I've heard that before. Isaiah 53.9 And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was sincere. He wasn't enduring it because he had an obligation. Though Though in one sense, he obligated himself, didn't he? He didn't just do it just because he had to. He didn't just do it because he was expected to. He didn't just do it because uh, that, that's just, well, you know, that's part of the job description. It's just one of those things on there that you got to do. There's certain things we do in our work because we have to. We don't want to. We don't want to sign up for it, but we have to. Right? There's certain things we do around the house. Uh, any, anybody like cleaning? I'm so glad you raised your hand. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take advantage of that. Yeah. Tried to raise Daryl's hand, but he fought it, huh? There, there are a lot of things we don't do sincerely. We do out of obligation, but he, he suffered sincerely. Not only was there no deceit found in his mouth, I don't think there was any deceit found in his heart either. He chose to be there. He suffered sinlessly and sincerely. He also suffered silently. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That also mirrors Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He could have hated that. That revile, that's basically what it means, hate. He could have despised the people that were doing this to him. Instead, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He suffered. He didn't threaten back but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Did you, did you hear that? He continued entrusting himself. You see, he had been entrusting himself to the righteous judge. And so in this day, when he's hanging on the cross, when he's dying, and, and, and even when he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is still trusting himself to that same God 
He suffered steadfastly. He could have quit. He could have given up. He could have called her day. He could have said, this is enough suffering. I'm done. I'm not going through any more of this. But he didn't. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, the masters of this world were unjust judges. Remember the trial? Wasn't really a trial, was it? It was more of a conviction hearing. It wasn't a trial. They weren't interested in truth. They weren't interested in justice. No matter. He entrusted himself to the just judge. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then as if all the references to Isaiah 53 weren't enough, he just outright quotes, by his wounds you are healed. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. He suffered sacrificially. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We turned our backs on him. And yet he still suffered sacrificially. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah says. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. suffered successfully. Peter says, for you are all straying like sheep. Another reference to Psalm 53, or to Isaiah 53. Do you get the feeling? Do you get the feeling that maybe, maybe Peter has seen the connection between the suffering servant and the suffering servant? The song of the servant in Isaiah 53 lived out in the life of Christ? you all were straying like sheep. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We were straying. But, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Christ suffered sinlessly. He suffered sincerely. He suffered silently. He suffered steadfastly. He suffered sacrificially. Praise God, He suffered successfully. 
you know, we're supposed to be suffering servants too. To go be like Jesus. When the master is ugly and hard and mean, go be like Jesus. When they're despising and rejecting you, go be like Jesus. When you suffer and you don't deserve it, go be like Jesus. And know that your suffering isn't in vain. Because it's full of God's grace. Father, you have called us to be suffering servants just like your suffering servant. But God, we know that Jesus wasn't just a suffering servant. You see, because in that same moment that he suffered, in that same, on that same cross where he bore the iniquities of us all, he also, he also ascended. This was his coronation day. Now, it would take a few days for us to realize it. We'd have to see him resurrected to get it ourselves. We're kind of thick-headed sometimes, and we need more proof, but... His sinless sacrifice was the means by which Christ won victory. Help us to know that when we suffer for doing good and when we endure, that you will bring success too in those moments. Help us to realize that those are the times that we become more like your son. And even if it's difficult to cherish the pain and the anguish at least remind us that it's not empty, but full of your grace. Thank you for suffering for us. You didn't just suffer for us, you suffered because of us. Now may we suffer for you. As men revile us and persecute us and say all kinds of manner against us falsely for your name's sake, help us to suffer and endure by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.